You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The new thing to worry about isn't that they lock up your data. It's not that they release your data. It's they change your data. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and the criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We've got some good stories to share this week, and later in the show, my conversation with Caleb Barlow from Synergistech. He's reacting to that recent story of the tragic death of a woman due to hospital ransomware. Joe, uh, I'm going to kick things off for us this week. I've got a story about some adware Mm -hmm. that uh, seems has taken a turn for the even worse, (laughs) if you will. Yes. One of the things we often say in security is don't ask how this could get worse because (laughs) there's definitely a way this could get worse. (laughs) Right. Right. It could be worse. Right. It's worse. So this is a story comes from ZDNet. Uh, this is written by uh, Catalin Simpanyu. The uh, title of the article is Linkery Adware Caught Distributing Full-Blown Malware. And the story here is that this thing called Linkery, which is uh, an adware operation, they're mostly known for distributing this thing called the Safe Finder widget, the ironically named Safe Finder <laughs> widget. Mm-hmm. If you put safe in the name, people are more likely to agree to it. That's right. So this Safe Finder widget uh, sells itself as being a way to securely search on the internet, but what it actually does is it installs adware on your computer, mm-hmm. and it has the capability of doing other things. Uh, right. I will note that I believe, as I mentioned on our show uh, a while back, I actually had found that my father had fallen victim to this. Really? Uh, yeah. This specific yep. strain of adware? I don't recall if it was actually Safe Finder, but it was it was the the sort of thing that they're famous for. It, you know, if you brought up a, a new search, it up popped a, a search window that bore a striking resemblance to Google Search. Mm-hmm. Uh, it had all the same colors, the same look and feel, but. It wasn't Google. It was another organization, and they would pop up ads. And let me tell you, it was a pain in the butt to get off of his Mac. It did not. I remember you talking about this. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it took some doing. So these folks are have been up to similar things, and you know, I, I guess in the in the realm of bad things you can have happen to your computer, adware is probably near the bottom. It's more of a nuisance than a real threat, right? right. I mean, they're, they're just popping up ads and that's how they make money. Well, it turns out that uh, the folks who make this Safe Finder widget, uh, these folks from Linkery, are up to no good. They're, they're not just distributing that, they're distributing full-blown malware uh, mm-hmm. onto your system. Uh, stuff that can do key logging, can uh, look for information, copy it out of the system. Worth noting that this Linkery uh, extension uh, runs on Windows machines. It runs on Macs as well. It does everything so it can. So it's cross-platform in its it malware cross- distribution now. Yep. Also, it's pretty sneaky. Like if you click through, you know, when a program pops up and it says, do you want to continue the installation? And it gives you a yes or no. If you say no, it installs anyway. <laughs> right. The, the no. Here, you know, here's the thing that is true on the web, but it's also true to less of an extent, but when you're talking about malicious software, software that's designed with malintent, just because that button says no on it 
doesn't mean that that's what's going to happen when you click on it. That event is defined in the code. And as the developer, you can have it do whatever you want whenever the user clicks no. Yeah. You can even have it do whatever you want when the user clicks the exit, the little X up in the corner or the red dot. Right, right. Or maybe not the red dot with Apple. I shouldn't say that because I don't know that that's the case with Apple. Yeah, yeah. I, don't, I, I suspect it probably isn't. Uh, knowing what I know about how that works, but right. uh, but better safe than sorry. Yep. And um, I, also, I think in terms of alerting your friends and family, your loved ones, all that sort of thing, that these sorts of things usually happen because someone will be minding their own business, browsing on the web, and they'll get a pop up message that says, "Oh, we've discovered that your computer is unsafe." Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, here's a Good news. Here's the way to fix it. Right. Uh, by installing, yeah, by installing this little extension, uh, you'll be able to be sure that you're only surfing to safe places, and and that sounds good. It's a typical con game, right? We, you have a problem. I have the solution. Let's get this fixed. Yeah. I can help. Interesting article. If you want the details here, of course, we'll have the link in the show notes. But I think the bottom line here is to uh, spread the word that these sorts of things are, are out there. You know, we all know who those vulnerable uh, folks are in our lives. Just remind them that if they get those sorts of pop-ups, they just don't install anything. Just always say no to installing those sorts of free things that say they're going to help protect your computer. Most of the time, I'd say the vast majority of the time, they are up to no good. Right. Remember the Brian Krebs rule. If you didn't ask for it, don't install it. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Good advice. Yep. All right. Well, that's what I have this week. Joe, what do you have for us? Dave, my story comes from Luke Leal at Sikori. It's a blog post they have, and someone is trying to fish AT&T employees and contractors and resellers and government people as well. They have a landing page that looks identical to the AT&T login page. And they are looking for usernames and passwords, including one-time passwords. Hmm. Okay, now these one-time passwords are like a multi-factor authentication, but sometimes it can be used just as the password. You use a uh, like a PIN and then a, a time-based password code that right. shows up either on a device or on an application. Once the user enters their username and their one-time password or their password, In this phishing site, the credentials are sent off via a Telegram API to someone who then uses them to log in, Hmm. right? Now, here's the thing. They have to do it quickly because these are time-based passwords, so they have to almost instantaneously respond. So I'm betting that there's some kind of automation on the back end of this that just goes ahead and and logs in and gives the attacker access to the AT&T account. This is really dangerous because they're going after AT&T and they're phishing the employees. They're probably trying to gain access to the internal systems of AT&T, probably so they can do things like SIM swaps, which would further allow them to intercept SMS codes directly without having to socially engineer them with a landing page like this. There's no information in the story about whether these people have been successful. There's also no indication about how they're distributing phishing emails or trying to get people to come to the page. What's interesting is that over at Securi, they have found this page and that they've, they've highlighted it, and that's good work that they're doing. But I wanted to talk a little bit about multi-factor authentication or about these time-based passwords. In multi-factor authentication or other means of authentication beyond username and password, there are two levels that we talk about. I talk about there being four different types of it, but really three of those types get grouped into one level, and that's the one-time password type, right? Mm -hmm. So this is a code that you are either sent via SMS, which is the least secure method, 
You can have a software token generated like Google Authenticator or Microsoft Authenticator, or you can have a hard token like RSA's Secure ID or HID's Active ID. The soft tokens and hard tokens use pretty much the same underlying technology. The difference is that presumably the, the hard token was assembled and taken care of in a secure facility and distributed to you without anybody else intercepting it. With a soft token, the seed for the number generator has to be sent across the internet somehow. And that connection is usually secure, but if it's not secure, someone can intercept it. So these are all the different one-time passwords, and they're pretty secure. They're better than nothing, but they can absolutely be socially engineered out of you using this technique that these attackers are either using or planning to use right here. This is exactly why they are not the best at protecting you and protecting your account from takeover. The other level is encryption, some kind of built-in encryption infrastructure. For example, there's the universal two-factor, which is developed by the FIDO Alliance, and YubiKey is one of the, the products. This is actually a physical token that you hold in your hands that has very little user interface. It's not a really technically difficult thing to do. It's you, you stick this thing in your, your USB port, and when the light comes on and the website tells you, or whatever service it is, tells you to, to click it, you just touch a button on the uh, front of the device. And that's it. And it does a challenge response, which is a cryptographic way of making sure that nothing's being replayed and that you have the proper keys to authenticate yourself. There is another one called Squirrel, S-Q-R-L, that was developed by Steve Gibson that's very similar. It uses public key encryption and zero-knowledge proofs. And actually, Squirrel might actually get rid of not only passwords, but also usernames. And you mm. just become a key identity on the internet. And if your public key is stolen, no big deal, right? Because that's a public key. Anybody can see it. Your private keys, just like with the uh, universal two-factor, those are the, are the keys to the kingdom. And those are fairly easy to keep private, particularly with the example of the universal two-factor device. When you pull that thing out, those keys are now physically disconnected from your computer. They're air-gapped. I'd like to see more websites use universal two-factor or Squirrel to authenticate the users. But once again, we're seeing why the one-time passwords here are not the best form of multi-factor authentication. I'm going to say this again. If they're the only thing that's available to you, use it. But you still yeah. have to make sure that you're on the right web page when you're submitting this information because if someone collects this information from you and they are fast enough, they can log into your account with that information and take over way the better than account. nothing, right? I mean, way right. better than nothing. Absolutely. Way better <laughs> All than, of these way better are than way just better than a password. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what strikes me about this is that, you know, in my own life, in my own using of multi-factor authentication and where I can use it, I do use it. And uh, thanks to things like using a password manager, which I know, you know, you're a big fan of. Actually, you're one of the ones who turned me on to it from the outset. You've been using them way before I was. Mm -hmm. It strikes me that there are a couple of ways that dealing with these multi-factor keys can work. You know, as, as you say, for example, the simplest one is somebody sends you a text message with a six-digit code. You enter that code in either a web page or on your mobile device or something like that, and that's the second factor. Well, right. and as this story points out, there are weaknesses to that because if someone is, is using social engineering and the, you're on a different page than the one you think they are, they can just get that code and then they can log in. Right. What strikes me is that, you know, some of the other tools that I use, for example, the password manager that I use, built into it has the option of, you know, something will just pop up on my phone and say, hey, is this you? Did you just request this? Right. And all I have to do is click yes. Mm -hmm. There's no code number. 
You know, it, it's the fact that I'm the one holding my phone that has already been, you know, authorized as a secure device, that it is in my hand. That's what does the authorization. So there's no code exchanged. I'm not putting anything into a website, into a form or anything like that. It's using the fact that it knows that phone is mine. I'm the one who has it and it's in my hand. That's the second factor. And that strikes me as a, as a different thing that it's, I love it because it's so simple and it takes away this thing that you're describing here where someone can get your second factor code by fooling you. Right. Well, if you think about the workflow of this attack, I log into what I think is an AT&T web page, right? Let's mm-hmm. say AT&T had a similar app on my phone. I go ahead and I log in. I enter my one-time password. The attacker goes ahead and they, they log into my account. On my phone, I see a thing that says, was this you? And I say, well, yeah, that was me because, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, but I, it's, it's still vulnerable to the exact same social engineering attack. Right. Again, it is another good version of multi-factor authentication. It's one that I didn't list in my list. Uh, it would be, you know, the device that you have. That's pretty good. But I think it's still susceptible to a social engineering attack, particularly if you're expecting to have logged into a service. Yeah. Well, as we always say, you know, constant vigilance, right? Constant <laughs> vigilance, right. Constant vigilance. But if you have the opportunity to use multi-factor, use it. If something's use important it. to you, use it. Right. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not yeah. disparaging multi-factor. I'm, I'm not disparaging the soft tokens or the hard tokens as being exponentially better than having nothing at all, just a username and password. A username and password is so easy to brute force, particularly if you, if you don't practice good password hygiene, you're, you're pretty much pwned out of the box, I guess. Yeah. All right, it's a good story, and of course, we'll have uh, links to it in our show notes. But now it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, our catch of the day comes from a listener named Jack. He was interacting with a scammer on OfferUp, which is a you know sell your stuff service, hmm. who claimed to have an RTX 3080 for sale What's for seven hundred fifty bucks. Oh, Dave, you don't know what an RTX 3080? That is the latest NVIDIA graphics card. Oh, okay. uh, Came out earlier in (laughs) September. Uh, The retail price is $700, but you cannot find them anywhere unless you go to eBay and you're willing to pay somewhere between $1,600 and $1,800. Oh, wow. So So if you're a gamer, this is an object of your desire. If you were looking for a new graphics card, the 3080 is a good price point at $700, and somebody is selling it to you for just $50 over retail. How generous of them. Right. Sure. This is a chat in the OfferUp chat interface where this person is trying to get Jack to pay for the app. Why don't you play the part of the scammer and I will play the part of Jack. All right, here we go. Well, hey there. Do you have Cash App? Not using Cash App. There's no buyer protection. They have buyer protection. I can send you the article. And he uh, sends a link that goes to, uh, that's a redirect link from OfferUp. And then, of course, OfferUp immediately says, be careful when opening websites that strangers send you, which is great security (laughs) on OfferUp's part. Thank you for that, OfferUp. That's good. And Jack says, sure. Read it. It's the official website. Jack says, can you send me an invoice? What do you mean? Like proof you paid for it? What is the process? I would rather use PayPal with invoice. And if you want, I'll pay the fee for you using PayPal. Send the money. I send invoice. Then I'll ship it with one to two day. On PayPal? Cash app. I'll cut you $25 off. Uh, no. Again, I'll pay the extra fee they charge you. Cash app does not have buyer protection. And then the attacker, this uh, malicious actor sends the link again. And Jack responds, the article you sent is for use of cash app debit card transactions. Read this. It's from the official website. Yeah, you will pay with a debit card, right? 
It's like how credit card companies offer protection. Cash App will provide it for debit cards. Again, I will pay you the extra 3% charge with PayPal. 720 Cash App, you get protected, I get protected. People on PayPal can just say the item didn't arrive, and PayPal always sides with the buyer. Not trying to lose $750. Again, Cash App does not have buyer protection. A Cash App money transfer is transferred from a Cash App account. Cash App does. There's literally a refund button. Yeah, the refund button is for the receiver of the funds. I can request a refund, but you would have to approve it. How about you place a deposit for this card, maybe 40%, and then once you get the card, you pay the rest. Again, I'll pay the extra on PayPal, or you can update the amount via this app, and I'll pay that. Hey, man, 40% or nothing. Not doing PayPal. 40% what? Pay $300. Once you get the card, pay the rest. Uh, have a great life, scammer. And that's where it ends. Oh, hey, diddly do. <laughs> that's good voice. I like it. So thank you, Jack, for sending that in. That was a great catch of the day. Yeah, that's a good one. So, I mean, what do we think is going on here? Just a stra- straightforward kind of take the money and run? Exactly. This is a take the money and run scam. There is no graphics card that someone's selling you for $750. If they wanted to sell it, they would sell it on eBay for the $1,600 that other people are, are charging on eBay and probably getting. Me, what I would do is I would be buying, if I really wanted a GTX, or not GTX, RTX 3080, uh, I would wait until it was available from a reseller, you know, like Amazon or Newegg or, or Best Buy or something before I yeah. would pay somebody else for it. What these people are doing is they're scalping these video cards, essentially, just yeah. like we used to do with concert tickets or they used to. I never, <laughs> I never scalped concert tickets. Um, right. But Video cards are the new currency. Right, right exactly. <laughs> All the, the kids are using tickets. them. Yeah. All right. Well, that is our catch of the day. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Caleb Barlow. He is the CEO at Synergistech. Uh, he's a regular guest over on the CyberWire. His company deals with a lot of security of places like hospitals. Mm-hmm. And so when we had this story come by about uh, the tragic death of a woman over in Germany due to a hospital getting ransomware, it's the story of you know, she was redirected to another hospital and in the time it took for her to get to the other hospital, they were not able to save her. I wanted to get Caleb's take on it. This is a work that he's familiar with. Here's my conversation with Caleb Barlow. Cybersecurity professionals are always focused on these kind of marquee events where kinetic impact comes into play. We always say kinetic impact, so it sounds fancy. But look, I mean, this is a very tragic event. Like literally someone died and they Mm -hmm. died because the hospital they were headed to was locked up with ransomware and they had to divert patients. And we can talk a little bit about why they have to divert patients, but I think the fundamental thing we have to understand here is in emergency medicine, there's this concept called the golden hour. And the idea is that an emergency medical professional, their prima facie duty is to get a patient to a higher level of care, i.e. a hospital or a trauma center or a stroke unit or whatever it is they need in under one hour from the time they dialed 911. And When you get in the way of that, statistically speaking, you break that golden hour, the death rate grows dramatically. And unfortunately, that's exactly what we saw in this case. Hmm. Now, this is your world, you know, securing medical facilities, medical systems. I mean, that that is the center of your bullseye. And I'm, I'm wondering, can you provide us with some insights as to 
What goes on within a hospital, within an emergency facility, when they find themselves in a situation with ransomware? It is my world on two fronts, Dave. On one front, I'm the CEO of a company that focuses on protecting about a thousand hospitals in the United States. On the other hand, and this is probably a little less known, I literally grew up in a fire station at at a very young age. I was an Hmm. EMT by the age of 18. I had a 15-year career working EMS. So this, this hits very close to home. And, you know, the thing you have to understand in an emergency medical situation is you're responding because something has gone very wrong. Like it's the worst day in someone's life and you show up at the door and it's your job to try to fix it or at least reduce the risk of that. So one of the primary things you're looking at is how fast can I get this individual to a higher level of care, whatever that is that they need. And of course, when something stands in the way, that's a problem. Well, what's really going on in the hospital? Well, think about what happens. You know, many of your listeners have probably been to the hospital, their doctor's office at one point or another. The first thing that happens is you show up and triage, right? What's your ailment? What's happening? And they're asking questions like, what's your medical history? Do you what's have your any, insurance? What's your, well, yeah, what's your insurance comes in. But <laughs> also, Dave, probably more importantly, what are your allergies? You know, has this ever happened before? Oh, this is your third heart attack, Mr. Bittner. Well, sure, you know, sure. that plays directly into the treatment because there's a lot of aggressive treatments you can do that if there's contraindications could kill somebody. So hmm. what a hospital does when they're locked up with ransomware, they can't access their medical records. There are no paper records anymore. They can't see what drugs you're on. They can't, you know, medications you're on. They don't know if you have any allergies. And not only that, their process slows down because all the documentation, all the patient routing, the flow is all done electronically. So the safest thing for them to do is start to divert patients and start to shut down non-emergency care. And that's exactly what happened in this case. They started diverting their ER, which by the way, there are procedures in place to do, you know, ERs mm. divert all the time, but usually due to patient load, not or you know a mass casualty incident, not because they're locked up with ransomware. You know, it strikes me, and I've never really thought about it this way, but a team of people at a hospital, a group of people who are used to having grace under pressure, who are used to being, you know, cool characters when when things are against them, are they perhaps better equipped than your average person to deal with a ransomware? Uh, attack because they're they're less likely to panic? Well, you and I have talked many times about crisis decision-making and how different that is from normal boardroom decision-making. I will tell you, and, and I know this from years of working in a cyber range, there are two roles that are just incredibly adept at dealing with crisis situations, healthcare workers and people that have had past military experience. So yes, healthcare workers are very good at working in a crisis, right? You know, that's what happened here. Crisis situation in Hospital A, let's move people to Hospital B. In fact, I I was talking with some clients that were telling me about a situation where a hospital was locked up with ransomware. And of course, there's surgeries going on. Remember, hospitals are 24 by seven operations. So there's literally patients on the table in the middle of a surgical procedure, and they couldn't access data. All of a sudden, everything locks up. Their comms go down. The systems they're working on go down. Now, Again, most doctors understand what to do in that situation, right? Stop moving forward, start making sure that you can protect that patient and you're not going to cause any harm. And one of the questions that kind of came out of this discussion was, how many close calls have there been that we haven't heard about as hospitals are continually getting locked up with ransomware? This just happened to be one where it was kind of a confirmed death. How is this different from, say, a power outage or a natural disaster that could interrupt a hospital's ability to do the work they do? 
it isn't any different at all other than it's totally avoidable. Hmm. Interesting. Let's come at this from another direction. I mean, we have the folks who did this. We have the ransomware criminals here. I would hazard to say that they did not start their day with the intention to cause loss of life. What is your take on that side of it? Well, interestingly enough, and this is another fascinating part of this story, Dave, we actually know what the reaction was because the police actually contacted them and said, hey, you've actually hit a hospital here. I don't know if they told them there had been a death at that point in time. They probably didn't know. But it appears that the bad guys were actually targeting a different entity versus the hospital. And once Mm. they found out it was a hospital, they then immediately provided a decryption key. So again, one of the things we have to realize is that there are humans on the other side. I think it's somewhat rare, but occasionally you do see some empathy here. Now, the other thing we have to look at is remember, ransomware has really elevated over the course of the last year. It's gone from, you know, a few hundred dollars someone was asking in Bitcoin to nowadays these ransom demands are in the millions But also, you know, we're seeing the corresponding extortion. If you don't pay by a certain time, we'll release some scandalous emails from your CEO and a whole bunch of other data. This is just going to continue to get worse. And what I keep cautioning people on is the new thing to worry about isn't that they lock up your data. It's not that they release your data. It's they change your data. And I don't think most security systems are monitoring what appears to be legitimate access to data if somebody changed it. And that's the thing. That's the thing we really need to prevent against. And there are ways to prevent this. Yeah, I agree with you that it's it's interesting to me that that has not really been breached yet, that we haven't seen, particularly in a medical situation, we haven't seen the threat of data merely being changed, that, that we can't rely on it. Right now, we're thinking that if we get our data restored, if we get that decryption key, the data we're going to get back is the same thing that we had before. But Boy, that adds a whole nother level of uncertainty to things, doesn't it? Well, I I think what we suddenly have to realize, and we're seeing this dialogue really occur today on kind of the election security front, right? Where we get into trust, we get into manipulation, we get into fake data, you know, deep fakes, all that kind of stuff. But imagine if I change data in a supply chain. Imagine if I change data in a healthcare record. All of a sudden, I break all of the trust in that system. I don't have to change all of the data. I just have to show I can change one record and no one can trust any of the data. And I've, you know, as a society, especially as an open society, we've become not only dependent, but so trustworthy of the data we get from our bank, from our supply chains, from our doctor, that if there's any indication that that might not be real, that we might not be able to trust it, then things break down in a rather significant way. And that can not only be lucrative for the organized criminal actor, but that can also be a very interesting ploy for a nation state actor. What about this notion that uh, not only should we, should we not pay the ransomware criminals, but that we should be forbidden to do so? Well, I, I got to tell you, and okay, this is a personal opinion. This isn't an opinion of my employer or anything like that. Yeah. But I will tell you, my personal opinion has started to really change on this. When this first started, these ransomware demands were like $500. And I would tell clients all the time, look, you know, the law enforcement is going to recommend you don't pay it. It's 500 bucks pay it, move on. It's it's just, you know, worst case scenario, you're losing 500 bucks. And I was right. saying the same thing when it was 10,000. And you would occasionally find me saying the same thing when it was 100,000. Well, now it's in the millions. Now these are real numbers. But what we also have to realize now is there's kinetic implications. And this is becoming rampant. This isn't an occasional issue. This is going to happen to everybody. The only way to stop this 
And I'm a firm believer in the way to stop cybercrime is to change the economics for the bad guys. Well, unfortunately, the only way to change the economics for the bad guys is to forbid paying a ransom. And if we move to that as a society where, you know, I, I guess to a certain degree, you criminalize it. Right. What's the point of ransomware then if nobody's going to pay? Mm-hmm. What about the fact that this is occurring over international lines? Does, does that change the equation? Or are we starting to talk about kinetic responses to some of these things? Well, hey, look, you know, if you talk, especially with, you know, government folks, and I think, you know, uh, various military operators have been asking the question for years of what is the bright line from a cyber perspective that warrants a kinetic, i.e. military response? Th- that's always an interesting question to ask, but actually, isn't that what makes the the cyber domain, such a valuable domain for a foreign adversary is that as long as they operate well below that bright line, whatever it is, there generally isn't a kinetic response. And, you know, yeah, the day may come where bad things happen bad enough that a military somewhere responds in a kinetic action. But there are a bunch of challenges with that. Like, you know, we all know how difficult attribution is. What if you're wrong, right? But again, more importantly, Probably the way to fix this isn't force on force. This is not a normal military type operation where it's an arms race. The way to fix this is changing the economics. And those economics can be changed not only for the criminal actor, but the nation state actor as well. Again, why I think I'm coming back to, and I'm not saying I'm all there yet, but maybe it's time to stop paying the ransom. Hmm. Until we get to that point, what are your recommendations? What are, what, in your opinion, what are the priorities people need to take in terms of uh, protecting themselves from this sort of thing? Two key things. First of all, you, you've got to have a detailed security assessment that specifically looks at your susceptibility to ransomware. So this goes well beyond kind of a standard NIST assessment, but looks at things like lateral movement and privilege escalation and what's your susceptibility to that. Because if you remove those capabilities from your system or make them harder, the odds of having a devastating ransomware incident go down significantly. Mm -hmm. Uh, The second thing is having a runbook for ransomware. And I'll tell you, you know, a lot of people think they have one. Go ask this afternoon to see it. If you don't see it within an hour, you don't have a ransomware runbook. (laughs) And practice like you play, right? Absolutely. You know, I, I mean, immersive exercises, walk through this the whole way, and, and whatever you do, do not assume your insurance company is going to have all the answers for you. Because at the end of the day, when you're breach, your insurance company is looking out for one thing, which is how much are they going to have to pay? They're not looking out for what's going to be the best thing for your business. All right, Joe, what do you think? Very interesting interview. It's always great to hear Caleb. I always like to hear what Caleb has to say. One of the things that he talks about first off is the golden hour. I didn't know that there was actually a time period called a golden hour where you have a lot worse outcomes after that hour. I Mm -hmm. I did know sooner is better, obviously, right? And this case does hit home for me. Uh, As I talked about, I think on the Cyberwire last week, had this happened to the hospital my wife went to last year, she might not have survived. Um, yeah. It was fortunate that, she, that we live as close as we do to a hospital. And I'd like to know how many close calls, like Caleb was talking about, there have been due to ransomware attacks. When you asked about how the ransomware attack is different from a power outage, and Caleb said it isn't very different except that it's avoidable. I would say this. You can plan for a power outage with backup power that comes online and provide some form of emergency power into a hospital. And these are usually massive diesel generators, but there are power backup solutions. Right. 
And what if we looked at medical records the same way? And I'm just spitballing here, and maybe there are some systems like this out there already, but what if there was like an air-gapped record system that was off until there was a ransomware attack? And then you could turn it on, and you could have access to the medical records unencrypted. They might be a little bit out of date because it was not on or even connected. You'd have to sneaker net the data over to the air gap system. But would that work? I don't know. Maybe it would. Maybe it wouldn't. Yeah. Maybe it'd be cost prohibitive. I thought of of that about that, having a, just basically a, a parallel system running that is somehow isolated from the real one. In the same way that a generator kicks in automatically, you know, if, if your main system goes down, could you automatically switch over? Right. I would just imagine that in, a, in some, a system as complex as a hospital with as many things that are going on and the myriad of places where ransomware could hit a hospital, right. just the complexity of it would be difficult to manage. But it is very complex. You've got a lot, of, a lot of healthcare <laughs> sensors that feed data directly into these systems. Yeah. This is just an idea I have. Maybe somebody's already out there thinking about this and maybe somebody else has already done it. I don't know. Caleb points out that there was some empathy on the part of these attacks hackers, when they found out that they were in a hospital, they immediately coughed up the keys and disappeared. I think that is going to be rare. Uh, There are a lot of ransomware people that deliberately go after hospitals because of the nature of the data being so absolutely life and death important to people. The hospital was lucky that this was not a scam, you know, one where they just go in and destroy your data and then say, give us money and we'll give you the decryption keys. Then they take the money and run. That's a lot easier to carry out than actually a ransomware attack. Caleb is right about the coming storm with data corruption. Uh, One of our instructors, Dr. Avi Rubin, has been saying this for a couple of years now. How much more terrifying is it if healthcare records are changed? That to me is is a horrifying idea. And, And Caleb talks about the loss of trust and how much of an impact that could have. The integrity of this data in all of these systems, not just in healthcare, but in any other system, just flipping bits in 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 data can have devastating consequences. Yeah. Yeah, I, I hear people, you know, sort of, we, we, we try to find the humorous side of some of these things sometimes, and people talk about how, you know, why couldn't they go after the college loan data? Why couldn't they go after the data that, that with the records of my mortgage? You know, right. if you're going to wipe something out. Yeah, help <laughs> me the, out. Do, right, do the world a favor, right? <laughs> I'm sure there's plenty of backups of that data, though. <laughs> exactly. Well, exactly, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the plan to pay a paper trail for sure. Outlawing payment of ransom is something we should discuss, I, I think. I think it's time to have that discussion as a you know cybersecurity community and then as society at large. This would change the economics of it, and I think it makes a good case for the problem going away. If, if we make it illegal for you to pay a ransom to a ransomware criminal, then their economic incentive drops off sharply. Because mm-hmm. now, not only have I lost my data as the victim of the attack, if I try to get it back, I'm committing a crime that may have very severe penalties, more than the cost of just recovering or paying the ransom. Right. You know, there may even be prison time involved. None of this legislation has been written yet. So, you know, I don't know anybody that's going to go to jail for the sake of their company's data. Nobody's going to fall on that sword, right? Yeah. Uh, They're going to not pay the ransom. They're going to recover or the company will shut down, which is actually something that very frequently happens, especially with small and mid-sized businesses. I like Caleb's plan of action. Assess your vulnerability have a plan, which he calls a run book, practice the plan, and update the plan. When you have these tabletop exercises for a ransomware attack, the first thing you should do is, okay, where's the plan? I like what Caleb says. If you don't have your hands on that plan in an hour, you don't have a plan. 
<laughs> I think you should have your hands on that plan sooner than an hour. You should know mm-hmm. where that plan is. That plan should be on a shelf, printed out somewhere, not on your computer, right? Because those yeah. are all going to be <laughs> locked up. It should be something that's printed out. It should it should be part of your business continuity plan. And you have to have those exercises and find out where the weaknesses are in it. Of course, when you finally have that ransomware attack, that plan is going to be of some use. There are going to be some things that you did not anticipate but it's important to have that plan. I can't remember who it was that said, the plan is useless, but planning is indispensable. No plan survives contact with the enemy. Yeah, that one I know. Yeah, yeah, military. (laughs) Finally, the one thing that Caleb said that's absolutely right is insurance is a way to offload risk. Your insurance company is kind of a partner with you up until the time that you experience an event because their goal is to lower the probability of you getting a ransomware attack. Uh, Once the ransomware attack has happened, the insurance company is now interested in their own their own interests and how much they're going to have to pay. And at that point in time, they might not be that helpful in the situation. So if you're looking for someone to help you with this, you should probably have a computer emergency response team. Uh, there are vendors out there that will, will provide those. And you can pay a retainer fee. And if, if something happens, they'll send people over to your site to help you recover quickly. I think a, a potential part that the insurance companies have to play in this is setting standards. Yes. In the same way that, um, you know, if you want to get insurance on your commercial building, you'd better have sprinklers and uh, fire extinguishers and exit stairways and all that sort of stuff. Absolutely. Uh, Insurance companies could uh, and they are saying, hey, if you want to buy insurance from us, you need to have these things in place. You need to have backups. These are the standards we demand. And, you know, maybe you'll get a discount or maybe we won't cover you unless you have these things in place. So that's right. I think there's a positive influence from that direction, something we've seen in other types of business. Don't mistake what I'm saying to be disparaging of insurance companies. They do provide a real service that people are willing to pay for. And you're absolutely right. You know, no insurance company is going to insure a building with what's it called? Knob and rail wiring. (laughs) (laughs) Right, 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 right. (laughs) That's right. That's a fire hazard. Just look it up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, look it up. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, again, our thanks to uh, Caleb Barlow for uh, taking the time and uh, jumping on the line on, on such short notice. Uh, he's, a, he's a great partner over on the CyberWire. We appreciate that from him. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. We want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Fittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. 